on the banks of the Neva River, was purpose-built to impress, not with the heavy, fortified architecture one might expect from an all-powerful Tsar, but instead with its refined civility. After travelling through Western Europe, he rejected Moscow and the Kremlin, with its citadel-like walls, and sent an army of serfs to dig canals that would remind him of Amsterdam. Alexander Pushkin, Russia's favourite poet, wrote, His will was fate. For a hundred thousand of those serfs, fate meant death, a price Peter did not hesitate to pay for his new imperial capital. Historian Nikolai Karamzin said the city was founded on tears and corpses, but one would never guess that from its wide boulevards, gilded steeples, and sprawling palaces. The feathery snow that blanketed the city in the winter served as a scrim curtain through which peaked the bright walls of neoclassical buildings, painted in shades of pale blue, pink, coral, and pistachio. Sleek sledges, their runners gleaming, pulled occupants wrapped in sumptuous furs along icy white streets. To an outsider, it seemed more fairy tale than imperial seat. And a fairy tale was precisely what had enchanted me that evening in the Marinsky Theatre, home of the Imperial Ballet. Seated in its gilded perfection, in a box adjacent to that of Tsar Nicholas II's, I felt the world around me fade into nothing as I watched the story of a princess turned into a swan and of the prince whose love might have saved her. The impossibly graceful dancers, standing on point, mesmerized. At least they mesmerized me. As for my husband, Colin Hargreaves, I could not be sure. He had come to Russia for his work, having been summoned there with increasing frequency over the past few years. As one of the Crown's most trusted agents, his familiarity with the intrigues of the Romanov court proved invaluable to Queen Victoria, whose granddaughter, Alex of Hesse, and by Rhine, now called Alexandra Fyodorovna, had married the Tsar. Not only could Her Majesty count on Colin to handle any political situations that might impact Britain, she could also trust him to take note of anything potentially threatening to Alexandra's happiness. St. Petersburg might be considered a beacon of culture and society by some, but to the Queen it was little more than a thuggish backwater. I don't mean to suggest Her Majesty was prepared to intervene on behalf of her granddaughter. She felt herself above petty court controversies, but this did not dissuade her from wanting to hear all about them. Although my husband would never comment on her motives, I remain sceptical that they went beyond a desire for base gossip. Regardless, Collins spent a great deal of time in Petersburg. Our century had proved difficult for the Romanovs. Alexander I may have emerged victorious over Napoleon in 1812, but this was not the beginning of a glorious period for his family. His grandson, Alexander II, survived five assassination attempts before being murdered in 1881. The martyred Tsar's son, Alexander III, responded by refusing to continue his father's liberal policies, and in 1887 police arrested a group of conspirators plotting to bomb the emperor's carriage. 
Nicholas II, his successor, bore a long scar on his forehead, the memento of an unsuccessful attack by a sword-wielding man who had been part of Nicholas's protection detail during a trip to Japan. Safety was not something a Romanov could take for granted. I knew little of Colin's precise responsibilities in the city. Covert activity, alas, must remain covert, even from one's spouse. I had long ago abandoned any attempt to persuade him to confide in me, although I'm quite certain he enjoyed my efforts in that direction. He admitted to me on more than one occasion that they provided some of his most treasured memories from the early days of our marriage. Accompanying him while he worked was ordinarily and necessarily out of the question, and I had begrudgingly grown accustomed to waiting and worrying at home in England.